This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 20? I'm just going to read right kind of in the middle of the chapter. Like I'll read verses 4 through 10, but then we're going to do kind of a flyover of the whole thing. Um, If you're new here, we are not bandwagon fans of Revelation. We didn't just jump on it because it was a pandemic and it seemed like the right time. We we actually had... We had planned this back in uh, and we planned this back in Nepal back in October when I taught Revelation to a group of a hundred persecuted pastors and I felt the Lord say, "Come back and teach this book through the eyes of the persecuted," because they read it differently than I did. When I said, got to the "How long, O oh Lord, before you you know give us justice?" That's a question they're asking in Nepal. Like that's a that's our question. How long? How long in India? How long in uh, uh, Asia? I almost said the country. How long in Asia? Uh, and so I want you. <laughs> that is literally the story of my life. Good job, buddy. Sorry, buddy. Verse four. <laughs> Verse four. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority. By the way, thrones, plural, don't miss that. Given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse seven. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. And to gather them for battle in number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loves. But fire came down from heaven, devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us insight today into your word that this is not an academic exercise, but it is in fact a, an engagement with your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you calm our hearts, calm our minds, open our spirits to receive from you. And Lord, if you start speaking to anybody in this room, let them tune me out and tune you in. All of us today need to leave with a, the rhema word from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is one that you don't hear talked about very much. The idea that Christians will be a part of judging the world. Curiosity, how many of you have actually even heard of that before? A few. It doesn't come up very much, am I right? 
um, unless you're a Mormon, and then it came up a lot, like it's the whole shtick. But, but in Christianity, it doesn't come up that much, and it's kind of fascinating that Paul said, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Basically saying, look, y'all are going to be judging like the world. Like you have this big job ahead of you. Can you not figure out who owns this chicken without having to go to court over it? Like, we, we don't need to go to court. You guys, you guys just got to figure this out. You're, you've got this big thing ahead of you. Jesus in Matthew 19 said that truly I tell you that uh, the renewal of all things, which is what we're talking about right now, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you have followed me, also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's this fascinating idea in Scripture that when you and I, in Christ, transfer into eternity, we're not going to be just sitting around floating on clouds and playing harps. Like, we'll have things to do that have to do with running the place. When it says to rule and reign with Christ, that's not just a song or a bromide. It's actually what's going to happen. You know what? I look at this section right here, and I think we're in good hands in the future with you young men and women judging the world. You know, maybe some things we got to tweak here or there. But by and large, you guys are smart, smart people. That's what the Bible's saying. Like, in the Holy Spirit, trusting in the Holy Spirit, that's what your future is. But in chapter 20, there are two groups of people. There are those who are being judged, and there are those who are judging with Jesus. If you get to the end of it, you see that white throne, and they're being judged. And then what we just read, there are those who are doing the judging. How do I get to be in the group doing the judging? And of course, everybody right now is probably tense, because Western Christianity, Western, we're saying, oh, judge not lest you be judged. Like Judging meaning like judging, like Deciding right, wrong, figuring out what this is, like that, that kind of judging. How do I get to be in that group and not in the group that is being judged? Isn't that a great question? And if this is true and we accept this at face value, wouldn't you want to know that? There is one difference between these two categories of people, only one. It's the word deception. Those who are not like being judged are those who were not deceived. I mean, think about this. Satan has been in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. Okay. Now you're probably thinking, Darren, why are you skipping all that stuff? We'll cover it on the deeper podcast this week. There's a lot to say there, but we've only got 30 minutes, right? So I've only give you so much here. But looking at that, the, you know, the, the, this thousand year period is here. Satan has been locked in a bottomless pit. Could he not have come up with some new techniques? He's had a lot of time to think, right? What if I try this? What if I try that? But he doesn't because it works. Like, it works really well. Do you remember the movie Inception? Did any of you watch that uh, on like DVD? Do they, I don't even have a DVD player anymore, but when it came out, I had a DVD player. I had to pause it a few times to catch up to what was happening. Did it, was that anybody else? I'm like, whoa, whoa, back up. I, I got that. I don't understand. I don't make any sense. But in this movie, the, the protagonist, uh, Dom, Dominic Cobb, he's got a few monologues, but listen to this monologue that he throws out there in the middle of it. He's talking about like, what is the most powerful force in the universe? 
And he says this, what is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria? Is it a virus? Sort of appropriate for Tay, isn't it? An intestinal worm? No, it's an idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks right in there somewhere. Christopher Nolan in this movie was capturing the essence of what the Bible is saying, that deception, the idea planted in your brain, is the greatest force in the entire universe to take you away from Jesus. That's why Satan being released again, the first trick is going to be deception. How do we defeat it? By the way, I'm going to give you three things, but I want you to hear me say this. I've said it before, worth repeating. If the Bible uh, wanted us to have Christian life in three easy steps, um, that it would have been written that way. <laughs> I, meaning, I mean, in the old days in a Christian bookstore, you would, have, you would have been forgiven to think that everything is done in five easy steps to this and 10 easy steps to that. And before long, I got 20 books and they've all got different steps and I don't even know what steps to start on anymore. I'm not giving you steps this morning. I'm just going to give you a compass. This is not a Surrey turn-by-turn direction map. This is a compass. This is the right direction to go. Does that make sense to you? These three things that I see that they were doing in this passage, the group that was not deceived, the group that was doing the judging, not being judged, three things that I see that you might see more, but that's what stood out to me. It's who they worshiped, who they were with, and who they were trusting. That was their bulwark against deception. You understand that deception, by the way, isn't like, did anybody grow up? I, we, uh, it's funny, Josh actually knows who Gospel Bill is. I was absolutely, I didn't think anybody knew who Gospel Bill was. But in the olden days, uh, they bring out the puppets. And anybody grew up in church with puppets? Anybody have the devil puppet and the angel puppet? We're narrowing the field down. You guys, you young kids with your screen time, you have no idea what you're missing. <laughs> I mean, you have not lived until a devil puppet pops up out of your Bible school teacher's hand and starts whispering in your ear. That, isn't that how you think deception works? Like, the devil's whispering in this one, and you got the angel, no, 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 don't, don't eat that last cookie. You know, like that's... That makes great Sunday school stuff, but that's not how it works. Deception starts with a choice of who we're going to worship. And what I mean by that is this. In verse 4 and 5, he saw those who were seated on uh, the thrones with authority to judge and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and hands. They came to life and reigned uh, with Christ for a thousand years. Do you understand what that's saying there, by the way? There's an interesting thing to look at. They knew that being deceived, okay, that it was better to lose their head than lose their mind, your life is better off if you don't have a head than to have a head with a mind that is lost. 
when Jesus talked about that, the metaphor of going into eternity without eyes and whatever, like there's a little bit of that image here. Like go, your deception, you might as well, you know, go into eternity without a head than without a mind because in eternity you get your head back, but you don't get your mind back. How did they do that? It says two things here, testimony of Jesus and the word of God. Okay, isn't that what it said? They were able to, they were beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, but it means that they were not deceived because of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. Listen to me carefully. I'm not suggesting that anyone in this room is going to get your head cut off. Please understand that. I'm not suggesting that, contrary to all of those terrifying movies in the 80s uh, that I got saved to like a hundred times when they kept cutting people's heads off in the movies uh, when the the Antichrist came. I'm not saying that to you, but I just want you to make sure you're hearing me say this right. But what I am saying is that that, that these people here in this moment actually would have rather chosen that than chosen deception. The testimony of Jesus. Oswald Chambers says this, the golden rule for understanding spirituality is not intellect, but obedience. If a man wants scientific knowledge, intellectual curiosity is his guide. But if he wants insight into what Jesus Christ teaches, he can only get it by obedience. What does he mean by that? Is it, I don't think it means that we check our brains out at the door. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying this, if your entire walk with Christ is an intellectual pursuit, you might know algebra, but you don't know life. There are things that you're only going to know by doing it, by being in it, by the testimony of Jesus. Oswald Chambers saying obedience simply means that there are things that Jesus is going to invite you to do, to be a part of that when you do that, you're going to meet Jesus in a way you wouldn't have met him any other way. For me, one of those ways, I was 16 years old in Guatemala with Ron Luce, who was 24 years old. Dear God, it was amazing. Any of us made it out of there alive. There were 25 kids. It was the first mission trip Ron had ever taken with teenagers. Mark, that was back when we were still doing skits on mission trips. I was the devil, of course. <laughs> and I was a good devil, too. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I had the perma-mullet, the whole thing. But one night, I was wandering through the streets uh, late at night in Zona 13 in Guatemala City, and we're the last bus out of town, and we're realizing, and we were 16, you know. I don't know if you know this or not, but at 16, your brain is not fully formed. And those moments when you ask your 16-year-old, what are you thinking? The answer is, they weren't. <laughs> what was I thinking, 16 years old, in a bad part of Guatemala? The buses are about to stop. What are we going to do? What were we thinking? We weren't. But what we did that night was we prayed as a group, a couple of ORU students, and I'm 16, and we just got in a, I remember we prayed, we, we held hands, and we got on a bus. I swear everything I'm about to tell you is true. We got onto a bus, the last bus. We saw a bus coming. We knew it's the last bus out of there, and it's the one we got to take. I don't know where it's going to take us, but it's take us anywhere but here. We got on that bus, and in the front row of that bus was a man wearing a hotel uniform, and the hotel uniform was of the hotel we were staying at in Zona 8, we got on that bus with him 
He got us to the, we had to change buses, by the way. We would have never made it back. This, there, you know, there was no Uber back then. Like this was not happening. There was no cell phones. We get on that bus and on that night, that man, we make the bus switch. We get to the hotel. We go to thank him in the next morning because he was working the overnight shift to thank him early that morning. And the people at the front desk said, I'm sorry, who? There's nobody here by that name. Nobody works here with that name. We never saw him again. Now, were we entertaining an angel that night? Was I, I honestly, I don't know, but I know this. I have a testimony of Jesus that you can't take away from me because I saw him. I spoke to him at 16 years old, and that still propels my faith to this day. When you are obedient to what Jesus invites you to do, you're going to experience things in Jesus that you're not going to experience in a Bible study. You're going to experience him in a way that faith builds. And I, like you, I've got dozens of those stories of crazy ways that Jesus has rescued me out of crazy situations. The testimony of Jesus, being obedient to Jesus is the way that you're going to know him. Now that said, the word of God is the other thing. The word of God is important. You can't have one without the other. Where I think the challenge has become is it become, if it becomes all an intellectual seminary thing, then you can know a lot about this and none about him. On the other hand, you can spend all your time in following the spirit and do some really dumb things that had you only checked the scriptures, you would have said, okay, never mind. That's actually really dumb. That's not what the Lord would say. Spirit and in truth. Now, I want to say this, and, and then we're going to move on. <laughs> the reason obedience is key to the bulwark against deception is this. There are two prayers you can pray in your life. You can pray hundreds of them, right? But they boil down to one or two. My will be done or thy will be done. My will be done or thy will be done. Thy will be done is wise because it's saying whatever you want, Lord. It's Romans 12. My will be done is Romans 1. I want it my way. Now here's the kicker. Jesus, those are both legitimate prayers and Jesus will answer both of them. Most of the people that I know that have gone down roads of deception, that have gone down roads of Christianity where they're doing things and saying things and believing things that you'd have to, I mean, the Bible is a lot like a man. You torture this long enough, you can make it say whatever you want. But most people that I know that have gone down that road, I used to ask myself the question, did their beliefs change and then their behaviors or did their behaviors change and then their beliefs I believe after reading Romans 1 that it is the simple answer that it was my behavior has changed and now I'm going down here to try to justify behavior. It's really not coincidental that most of the time that the, the brand new information that someone has discovered in scripture just happens to justify behavior that is happening in their own lives. And I've watched men and women blow their families up, burn their lives down in the name of progressive Christianity because we suddenly have got this brand new information of how we can do this brand new thing in this brand new way. And before long, 
their hearts are broken, their marriage is shredded, they're, because they just said, you know what, Romans 1, I, I, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but my will be done. And what did God answer in that prayer? Chapter 1, verse 23, 24, 25, 26, and then he turned them over, and then he turned them over. Isaiah 64, verse 7, he says, he let their sin, he turned them over to their own sin. And when that happens, deception has taken hold. And I say that because of this, back to the puppets, I don't think it's Satan tricking you. I think that if you are being deceived in any way, it's because you wanted to be. You wanted to be deceived. I wanted to do this on my own. I wanted to make it, I'm making these decisions. And the longer I've been down that, then the deception follows it. Does that make sense? Good. The second bulwark was who they were with. Who they worshiped was Jesus, right? They offered their life as a living sacrifice, not to their job, not to their career, not to their sexual identity, not to their preferences, to their anger, to their rage. They offered their lives a living sacrifice. That's they were worshiping Jesus. And the second is who they were with. In that verse, it talks about where were the people of God? They were camped together. Gang, there is a reason why the world right now wants to divide all of humanity all into our own homes locked up and apart from each other. Deception thrives in isolation. Depression thrives in isolation. Anxiety thrives in isolation. That early church, what did they do? The world around them was falling apart. They gathered together in Jerusalem. They devoted themselves to prayer, to teaching, to the, uh, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship. That gathering wasn't just so they could have fun. It was so that they could survive. In this world right now, whether it's in a small group in your living room, whether it's a small group on a Tuesday morning with a bunch of men, but somewhere in your life, you need community together so that they can speak the truth into your life. One of the greatest gifts that God ever gives us is the gift of self-awareness. Romans 12 tells us that uh, to think of yourself soberly, right? Uh, I think it's verse five. Think of yourself, not more highly of yourself, but think of yourself soberly. Do you know why it says think of yourself soberly? Anybody in here ever been in a bar fight? Oh, come on. Of course, Paul, I know that. Here, <laughs> David. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Ray. Well, I have too. So here's the thing. Here's why they call it liquid courage and not liquid wisdom. Because there's a moment where that liquid courage says, I can take those guys. That's not liquid wisdom at all. The Bible telling us to think not more highly, but to think soberly of yourself is just simply means believe the truth about myself. The opposite of deception is not truth. The opposite of deception is humility. Believing the truth about myself. That I am in need of a savior. That my way, my will be done is a problem. And I find that best when I am in groups of people that hold me accountable. I took a spiritual gifts test about 20 years ago in a living room of some church. Uh, TJ and Amy, you guys might have been there. I don't remember. 
Here's what our, this might be, you might remember this. I remember we get to it, and it's one of those ones where they put all like 20 gifts on one test, and it really wasn't that effective. But, um, but we get to the end, and it says, uh, I scored zero for mercy. <laughs> See, now y'all are laughing. And my wife, Shannon, watching right now in the living room, I, I could not have been more shocked. I'm, I've told you, I'm the nicest guy I know, right? I'm not merciful. I could not have been more surprised. My wife looked and said some version of, how is it possible you did not know this? At that point, I would have been 30 years old. How is it possible you've made it 30 years of your life and had no idea that you've got no mercy at all? I learned that in a group sitting in a circle about myself. The bulwark against deception was sitting in a group where people can be honest with each other, where you can say the truth to each other and not leave from it. That happened in that group. That is still the bulwark against deception today. We can speak the truth to each other because the fact of the matter is if you want to spread with the masses, if, if, if we learned anything throughout human history is that if an idea or a concept is popular across a country, if it is popular across the masses and the mobs, if it is popular amongst famous people and government institutions, if it is popular amongst all of that, it is probably not true. I mean, how many years of human history do we really need before we finally think, oh, I'm seeing a pattern here. Getting together with God's people gives you a bulwark against the madness of the crowds. Keeps you from getting sucked up and swept up into that. The last thing, who they trusted. I don't have much time here. I got three minutes and I'm about to land this, so get ready. Put your seatbelts on. We're going to jam this in. In that last verse, it says that there was a white throne. Okay, the last, the last few verses of that, that there were these people around the white throne. Now think with me. Every other time a throne is mentioned in Revelation, the people in front of the throne, the color of their garments were mentioned, but there was no mention of the color of the throne. In this one, no mention of the color of the garments, but a mention of the color of the throne. Why is that? I'm going to tell you why, because they were judged according to what they had done. They made a decision to be there based on their work and their effort. You and I in Christ, we stand before a throne in white, which speaks of purity, because we don't trust in what we've done. We trust in what he's done. And because of that, we stand there dressed in white, not dressed in what Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, filthy rags. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's the decision that they have made to stand there. And when I say they made, I want to say this. I'm going to give you a Tim Keller quote. Tim Keller's definition of hell is absolutely brilliant in my mind, and it helps me understand a lot. When he speaks of the image of fire here, he says this, that fire doesn't cause something to cease to exist. It turns it into its original components. It disintegrates the things that connect the chemicals and make it what it is. The bonds are broken by the fire and it goes into pieces. Some of it breaks down into chemicals. Some of it vaporizes, right? The smoke rising breaks things down to pieces into its constituent parts. Things lose their coherence and integration. Fire disintegrates. 
And the Bible doesn't just say that about hell, but it says it about sin. The Bible says, right, Colossians, in him all things are held together. In him all things exist. That means the absence of God is a raging fire. The absence of God is everything burning down. On this side of heaven, no matter how we try, how hard we try to get away from God, he's still here right now. What did David say? I could go to the depths and you are there. I go to the heavens and you are there. And that's part of the mercy of our Genesis 3 world. As a result, this is something else Keller says, as a result, we are always kept somewhat intact. As long as you were in this life, your body and soul are kept together. That's why you're alive. That's why your humanity is intact. But the Bible tells us that someday, if you continue to insist on getting away from God, you will succeed. And hell is a place where those who wanted to get away from God finally succeed. And in that place, you completely break down. In that place, the disintegrating work that begins here through sin comes to its fruition. I'm going to give you one more C.S. Lewis and his definition from The Great Divorce. If you've not read The Great Divorce, or if you have, I encourage you to go back and read it again. But listen to what he says here. I'm going to skip into this. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. Have you ever wondered why God gives you the mercy of only living 80 years on this earth? Can you imagine how much trouble I could cause if I had 800 years or a million in fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term with it. And here's the quote. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer do so. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or to even enjoy the mood, but just to grumble the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine he finishes saying, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. And every one of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Bringing our lives under obedience to Christ is the beginning of nipping that stuff in the bud. To be super clear, I'm going to stand in front of this throne in Christ, as are you, in white. 2 Corinthians 6, Romans 14, it speaks of a bima seat judgment. That throne is not white because the clothes you are going to be standing in are white. And that throne, 2 Corinthians 5, I think, and it speaks of that judgment. And what it says about that is that the wood, the hay, the stubble is going to burn. And that sounds really terrifying, but that's not supposed to be terrifying because what it's saying is all that dumb stuff that I have done, the things I've said, the time I have wasted is going to burn and I'll never see it again. It's mercy. And what is left is the goodness of your life that goes on forever dressed in the white of him. That is the Bema seat judgment. That is not the one that we see here in Revelation chapter 20. That is the white throne judgment. And that is not the one that you want to be in front of. That is the one where you have said, it is my will be done. And now I'm going to put my works up against the white throne. And Isaiah 64 says that will not work because our righteousness is as filthy rags. 
stand to your feet. I want to encourage you to walk out of here today knowing that you are standing in the white clothes, the white purity, the righteousness of God in Christ. And all we have to do is accept and receive that. It's such a gift. He didn't do it because he's angry at you. He did it because he loved you. And he wants you to walk out of here today in that white garment. I'm going to pray for you right now. And maybe you just pray where you are if you want to have that kind of a relationship with him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your mercy. Lord, thank you for not making me try to figure out how to dress up in front of you. You dressed me so that I could survive in front of you and not just survive, but now get to go on into eternity to be a part of the the judging, to be a part of ruling and reigning. I don't even understand that, but that's so amazing. You would choose people like us. People like Sam and Zoe. Man, you're picking good ones to be there for eternity. We all want to be a part of that because Jesus, I know that you, you are going to come in this great restoration and I do pray it's in our lifetime because I sure would love to be standing in the kingdom of God soon with the perfection of it. But until that day, Lord, we will not shrink back. We will not bow. We will rise up in faith with the new wine that you have created in us and through us. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen and amen.